U.S. Navy history arriving. Welcome to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and unfortunately, Stephen has been press-ganged by the British for this week, so I, instead, I am joined by author and historian Eric J. Dolan. He is here to talk about his newest book that just dropped at the beginning of this month. It is called Rebels at Sea, Privateering in the American Revolution. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Thanks for having me on. Oh, exciting to have you here. <laughs> so would you like to uh, let everybody know a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm talking to you from Marblehead, Massachusetts, which is about 20 miles north of Boston. It's on the coast of uh, Massachusetts. Uh, it's a great sailing town, has a, a great uh, maritime and naval history. Uh, General John Glover is from here and Glover's Regiment, as we all know about in the American Revolution. But I've been uh, I've been writing books since about the late 1990s. Uh, I worked in many jobs. If you ever saw my resume, you think I couldn't keep a job. I worked for the federal government. I worked for nonprofit groups. I worked for biological research organizations. I have an undergraduate and master's and a PhD, all in biology and public policy and environmental policy. So you may be wondering how I got to be a writer of American history. And that's basically because I just always loved history. And I uh, started writing books while I had full-time job. I actually started while I was in grad school. And uh, eventually, in around the year 2000, I told my wife that I wanted to be a writer. And <laughs> she uh, wisely said, uh, that's great. I, I want to support you. But uh, had to, I had to put aside a year's worth of my salary before I made a jump to be a writer. And it took me five years to do that. I've written... Uh, uh, 15 books. So anyway, that is a, sort of a brief summary of me and how I got to be here. Uh, the book came out on May 31st, as you said, just this uh, past week. And uh, I guess uh, ask me any questions you have about the book, about privateering or about other books that I've written. I, I mean, I sort of written books on all different subjects, pirates, the fur trade, whaling, uh, China, lighthouses. I sort of bounce around from topic to topic. And uh, one other thing that might be of interest to your listeners is that I always pick book topics about things that I don't know a lot about. Uh, and that's a lot of things since I'm not a history, uh, I'm not trained as a historian. Um, so the reason I pick books, uh, topics about things that I don't know a lot about is because I have to work about 18 months to two years on these books and I want to remain engaged and excited and interested. And the best way to do that is to pick a topic that you don't know a lot about, because then you get excited about stuff you find every day. And that, that certainly was the case with Rebels at Sea. The way that Rebels at Sea came about was I wrote a book on pirates called Black Flags, Blue Waters, the epic history of uh, America's most notorious pirates. And uh, every time I gave a talk on that book, at the end of the talk, people would ask me questions about privateers. And they would Blithely say, you know, privateers were pirates, weren't they? And do you talk about them in your book? And yes, during the early 1700s and before, going back to the 1200s, a lot of privateers were actually nothing but pirates. Uh, but in the American Revolution, they most definitely were not pirates. They were not attacking, and they weren't, weren't enemies of all mankind. They were not attacking ships of all nations. They had letters of mark, they had specific uh, legal permission from the Continental Congress to attack British shipping primarily. And it was a much more regulated, controlled process. Very different, for example, the kind of privateering 
that occurred at the end of the 1600s in the United States when we were at war with France. England was at war with France and American colonies sent out numerous privateers ostensibly to attack French ships. But instead of attacking French ships, they went around the Cape, Cape Horn into the Indian Ocean and they attacked Mughal ships transiting between India and the Red Sea ports of Jeddah and Mocha and stealing all their money and bringing it back to the colonies. And there was a whole graphs uh, situation set up. The colonial governors were uh, getting kickbacks from these pirates to give them privateering commissions. And they were getting kickbacks when they came back with all their booty. So basically, because privateering was so abused for so many centuries, it was given a bad name and it was very much synonymous with piracy. But starting with the Seven Years' War and the French and Indian War, and then much more clearly during the American Revolution, especially on the American side, but also the British side, because one of the things I talk about a lot in the book is that Britain sent out privateers themselves to attack American shipping. By that time, privateering was much more regularized. It was much more regulated. And really, most of the American privateers acted honorably and within the confines of what they were asked to do by the Continental Congress. So that's a very long way, my introduction, and sort of pirating and privateering. So <laughs> That's actually where I wanted to start, because right there in your introduction, you do go right into that, that piracy and privateering and letters of mark are actually three different things. Right. Well, letters of mark were a document that the Continental Congress gave out. It was a piece of paper and it had a lot of blank spots where you could list the name of the captain, the size of the crew, the armaments on board the ship. And essentially the letter of mark is legal document that gave the bearer, usually the owner or the captain, the right to become a privateer. Now there were two kinds of privateers. There were privateers that are what I call sort of straight privateers. And these are heavily armed, usually formerly merchant ships or fishing ships or sometimes purpose-built ships that were very heavily armed, had big crews, sometimes well over 100 men on a 70 or 80-foot ship. And they were they went out expressly. They were hunters. They were hunting for prey. And in this case, the prey was British shipping out on the Atlantic primarily. So uh, that was their sole goal, to go on cruises, capture British ships, bring them back as prizes, have them adjudicated in port, determined whether they were a legal prize, and then if they were, the great thing about privateering from the perspective of the privateers, men and the owners, was that if you got the, if you got a valid prize, you could sell it at an auction. You could sell the ship, you could sell all the contents and the cargo. All of the proceeds would be split 50-50 between the owner and the investors in the ship and the people on board the crew. So there was a clear profit motive. But as I argue a lot in the book, uh, privateers were just as patriotic as everybody else, I believe. So that's one kind of privateer that went out solely to attack British ships. But then there were these privateers that were called letters of mark to confuse matters. They also had a letter of mark, but they were com they were commercial ships. So they went out to trade because even during the American Revolution, the United States, the United States, well, it was the United States sort of after the Declaration of Independence or the colonies. They were still trading with certain ports around the world. They were still trying to get goods into the colonies and then and the states. And uh, these letter of mark privateers would have a letter of mark on board, but they would also be carrying cargo that they wanted to sell in Bilbao or in, in Holland or some other place where they were still, Americans were still welcome. But they also were armed. 
they usually had smaller crews, maybe 30, 40 men. And basically, if they ever came upon a British ship that looked like a good prize and they felt that they could take the ship, they were allowed to attack that ship. And if they captured it, they would put a couple of their men on board and they would sail it back to port. So they were sort of opportunistic privateers. Some of them didn't attack anybody because they either didn't come into contact with a British ship or the British ships they saw were too big to tangle with. But some of these letter of mark privateers did capture a lot of ships. Uh, but the vast majority of privateers during the American Revolution were straight privateers. And I have to say one other thing that might confuse some of your listeners, and, and I had to deal with this in the book, is I refer to the ships, the vessels, as privateers. A <laughs> lot of books, when you read them, they call the people on board the ship and the ship a privateer. And to me, that got a little bit confusing. So I called the vessels privateers. And I called the ships, uh, the people on the ships, uh, the crew and the captains and the mates, they're privateers men. And they were all men. I mean, there, there's one reported instance of a woman being on board a privateer, but I was unable to find any evidence that that actually was the case. But it is interesting. There, of course, were there were female whalemen, uh, whaling people on whaling ships. There were women that fought in the American Revolution in the army. Uh, and, uh, so it's not, and there were a couple of women who were actually pirates, you know, Anne Bonnie and Mary Reed's the famous right. example. So it's very, it would be very exciting. And I would have loved it. I would have loved it if I had found evidence that there was a woman on board, a privateer other than, uh, a British woman or a woman that was on a captured prize. Sometimes there were women on board privateers when they were brought back to port, the prizes, because sometimes there were passengers on board that were women. But that's very different from saying that there's a woman on an American privateer that is fighting alongside with the men. So anyway. Right. It's one thing to be a uh, passenger and one thing to be a fighter. So yes, I yeah. completely yeah. agree with you there. Uh, so you mentioned uh, these prize courts. Yep. Is there any indication of how these actually worked, how they were able to actually verify that these were valid prizes or was it just pay me this much and it's a valid prize? No, no. Well, I mean, there could have been some of that going on. I didn't see any evidence of it. Basically there were ships papers. They could, they could evaluate the cargo and the manifests and where it was going. And they can interrogate the people on board that were brought into port. And they had ways of figuring out. I mean, you, it's pretty easy to figure out whether or not it's a British ship. Um, and if it's not a British ship, but it was bringing goods or military supplies to British, the British Army or the Navy, then it was also a valid, it could be a valid prize. The actual adjudication process, I don't go into great length about that, but they had hearings, they had lawyers. One of the things that it's funny, one of the things that I do mention in the book is that privateering during the American Revolution was a great boon to lawyers because all of these prizes that were being brought into court the owners had to be represented in the vice admiralty court by lawyers, by barristers. So there's a great letter from one lawyer to another or one guy to another saying, boy, you're making out like bandits during this American Revolution because you have so many prize adjudications. So there, it was a legal proceeding. There was evidence taken. People were cross-examined. And I'm sure they made mistakes sometimes, just like our legal system makes mistakes today. But they were reasonably confident when they finally concluded that, yes, it was a valid prize. But there also was an appeals process. And there were a number of cases that were appealed to a higher authority, a higher uh, 
could be appealed to the Continental Congress or a higher court. And there were a number of cases that were overturned. So there, were, in fact, was some inspection of the evidence. And there were, I think, on the order of maybe 30 or 40 cases in which uh, the lower court's decision that it was a valid prize was overturned later. And the ship and its cargo were ultimately sent back to the original owners, whether that was a, a Dutch or Spanish owner, maybe, or uh, perhaps even a British owner, although that, that rarely happened. There might be circumstances when a British ship was carrying stuff for another neutral nation. So so it was I wasn't there during the courts and the records of the courts are sort of not that great. And a lot of records from the American Revolution have been lost and are very jumbled up in archives. So uh, there are people that study these vice admiralty courts and they could probably go into much greater depth than I did about how they performed. I was more interested in the fact that they were there and they helped the process and they helped determine that quite a few of the almost 2000 British ships that the Americans brought in, the vast majority of them were determined to be valid prizes and were actually, you know, part of the stream of commerce that was coming in to the colonies. So anyway, I mean, just an overall one, one thing I want to step back and say, I said the, the reason why I think this book is interesting and the reason why I got interested in writing it is basically when you go to school, you learn about the American Revolution. You hear about all the land battles. You hear about right. General Green. You hear about General Washington. You hear about uh, General Knox. You hear about some very famous fighters. You hear about John Paul Jones and the Continental Navy. You hardly ever heard, if you were like me when I was in school, about privateers and privateersmen. And I firmly believe, and I think the evidence supports it very clearly, that privateering had a major impact on the course of the American Revolution, uh, certainly a much more significant impact, I believe, than the Continental Navy, which was very small at the time and had limited success. So to, uh, to have a full picture of what the American Revolution was, you need to have all the different pieces. And, you know, it's George Washington who said that it was a standing miracle that they won the American Revolution. And as you read more material about the American Revolution, you realize there were so many moments when had a decision just gone slightly differently, had, 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 had forces showed up five hours earlier, a day later or whatever, the entire course of the revolution could have turned. I mean, by all rights, Britain should have won. They, they should have beaten us in the first year. I think they made a lot of mistakes, but also Americans did a lot of things right. And George Washington did a great, did a great job of losing just enough so he could battle again, fight again and again and again, and sort of a war of attrition. Now, you can't play the, as an historian, I think it's silly to say if X had happened, then history would have changed. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that if you understand how wars are fought, not just the American Revolution, any revolution, any, any war, there are so many elements that go into that success or failure that uh, you have to be a little humble. I think you have to be humble as an historian. And you have to realize that just because it happened doesn't mean that it was inevitable at the time. If you could go back to 1775 and 1776 and really be a colonist, just imagine what was going through your mind or be Benjamin Franklin or John Adams. They had no idea that they were going to win six, seven years later. <laughs> now we look back and we say, of course we won. We were brilliant, weren't we? Well, <laughs> that, that, that's, that's not a good way, I think, to look at history. <laughs> right. I'll say one other thing about the book. One of the, it, you know, the book it is, has a number of chapters, of course. 
But there, there are a couple of ways in which privateering was so important. Uh, one is it sort of made the British bleed. It brought the maritime fight to them. They were shocked that we were fighting them on the ocean, not only privateers, but also the Continental Navy. So it, it caused a lot of pain in Britain. It caused insurance rates to, to skyrocket. It, re, it, it caused a 66% reduction for a couple of years in British trade to the Caribbean sugar islands, which was their most important source of income. It got a lot of merchants in Britain very upset and they helped create pressure to end the war. It uh, helped bring France into, Amer into the war on the side of the Americans because uh, the French and the British hated each other. And according to prior treaties that they had signed, neither of them was supposed to support privateering. Yet the France, if in France, it was an open secret almost that they were enabling American privateers not only to use French ports in the Caribbean and in France to resupply and to sell things that they, they had to and to fix their ships, but also it got to the point where American privateers were being commissioned with letters of marque in Dunkirk, France, and in the Caribbean island of uh, Martinique and sent out to fight the British. And this really irritated the British to the point that they thought they were going to declare war on France just because of all these privateering shenanigans. And then we had, of course, the famous Battle of Saratoga when jo gentleman John Burgoyne got his butt kicked and the British army, they captured, you know, six or 7,000 uh, prime British soldiers. That was a major turning point, but it was that in conjunction with all the animosity that had been raised between the British and the French due to uh, the fr French support of American privateering that really helped tip the balance and that's when France decided, okay, these Americans are for real. They might be able to win. Uh, let's become their allies and, and friends. And they were already our allies before that, in a sense. They were providing munitions. They were providing money. They were providing support to our privateers. So it just, that was a fascinating part of the story to me. But one of the things that people don't really think about that I think is almost the most important thing is that there were massive shortages in the colonies and the states during the American Revolution. And these thousand, couple of thousand British ships that were brought in, most of them were merchant ships, not warships. They had cargoes, they had flour, they had rum, they had wine, they had cordage, they had sails, they had all different kinds of foodstuffs, beef, pork, uh, bread, butter. And all of those goods that came in to the ports, American ports, the, the cargoes were sold. And they went into the economy. Some of those cargoes went to the Continental Army and helped clothe them and feed them. A lot of it went to average individuals. And yes, prices were high. There was a lot of inflation. You think inflation was bad now. The Continental bills were worth nothing after a couple of years. So you had, uh, you had this stream of goods. And there, there's a great quote from a Philadelphian who wrote to a paper who basically said, what I think is very true, said without the privateers and all the stream of goods that they brought in, we hardly could have survived during the war. But it's not only that, there were tens of thousands of privateersmen. Think about all those former fishermen and merchantmen who would be totally out of work if it wasn't for privateering. Do you think that the coastal ports, which were the most important politically in the colonies, would have been on the side of continuing the revolution? If they had tens of thousands of more people totally out of work, grumbling, saying we need to get back into the fold of Great Britain so we can feed our families. So privateering in a very real way helped feed the country, helped supply the country, 
And it also, those privateers that were successful, and that certainly wasn't all of them, but the ones that were successful and came back with maybe a couple of hundred pounds in their pocket, uh, were able to help their families. And that money filtered through the economy as well. Uh, one historian, early 19th century, 20th century historian, said that privateering during the American Revolution was probably the largest industry in the country. And I think that's there's a good argument to made to made that that was the case. So all these different ways, uh, privateering influenced the course of the war. Another way it influenced the course of the war is with these horrible prison ships in New York and Wallabout Bay in New York, the Jersey being the most famous of them, which was called Hell Afloat. I mean, between 800 and 1,200 men were kept in this old 64-gun British ship that had been dismantled and basically placed in four or five feet of water in Wallabout Bay. Eight to 1,200 men kept below decks, allowed to come up maybe an hour or two a day. They had no place to sit, no place to lay down other than the deck. It was pestilential. Uh, there were there were every day around the uh, stairs that went up to the main deck. There were a couple of feet of excrement every day. The British guards would yell down, "Americans, bring up your dead." Six to twelve men died a day. Maybe eleven thousand men died in the Jersey over the course of three to four years, and probably eighty to ninety percent of those were privateers. And that was well known in the American public at large and among politicians. And that even increased the enmity that the Americans had for Britain. And I believe in a very difficult way to measure, but I, no less real, I think that helped fuel uh, people to fight even harder against the British. And it certainly fueled a lot of the potential people who are going to be captured by the British to fight harder not to be captured because you had this image of going to one of these prison ships uh, I, I just couldn't imagine anything more dreadful. And I have an entire chapter on this called Hell Afloat. And when you mm -hmm. read some of the accounts of the people who actually lived through it, I mean, it just it beggars belief how horrific the conditions were. So the thing that fascinated me about this story so much is that it had so many different angles. I mean, I love the American Revolution. It's one of the most fascinating Along with the Civil War, it's probably one of the two things in the United States and the World War II, actually. I can imagine, I don't think there are any, any things that are written about more than those three conflicts. That would be my guess. Maybe Abraham Lincoln on his own gets 16,000 books or Thomas Jefferson or whatever. But those conflicts really were our, our focus of historical writing. And the, the American Revolution, so it, it, it engaged me because it's such a great story and it's somewhat mythic in its proportions, but then finding this part of the story that isn't as well told is not something that's known by everybody, just made it more exciting for me. And uh, it was, it was just, it's just a, it was a fun book to write. And I hope, <laughs> I hope it's a fun book to read. <laughs> yes, it is. I, 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 I ingested it in one day. It was, I couldn't put it down. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> I'll hire you as a publicist. <laughs> <laughs> now, the Continental Congress, they did not all see eye to eye with privateering. A lot of them were right. upset because they thought privateering was taking away men from the Continental Navy, the Continental Army. Mm -hmm. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, a lot of people were upset about that, and they were absolutely right. Privateers were sucking potential 
uh, Marines, uh, naval men, uh, continental soldiers. There's absolutely no doubt that a lot of people who saw the prospect of making more money potentially than you could in the Army and in the Navy in perhaps less rigorous conditions uh, joined on to privateers. So it was definitely a drain on manpower, not only manpower, but a lot of cannons and munitions and ammunition went to privateers. So that's a that's a good, valid criticism. But the you have to think about the alternative. If there had been no privateers, that doesn't mean automatically that the Continental Navy in particular would have been this incredibly powerful fighting force. Uh, basically, the Continental Congress from scratch had to develop a navy. That's hard enough for a well-functioning, uh, deep-pocketed government to do. The Continental Congress was basically poor, and they couldn't levy taxes on these 13 very different colonies. So they had to spend about 16% of all their expenditures just to pull together a 60-ship navy. And a lot of the ships were built, had to be built so quickly that they were built with green timber that hadn't been properly seasoned. And that caused problems with the sailability and just the structural uh, ability, structural integrity of these ships. So uh, if you had suddenly had no privateers, the continent of the Congress wouldn't have all of a sudden had more money to invest in ships. And uh, they might have had more men, they might have had more ammunition and more cannons, but they wouldn't necessarily have had a larger uh, Navy. And when you think about it in that way, I think that's the sort of the heart of the argument. Privateers, given the alternatives, this militia of the sea, this basically cost-free Navy, given the alternatives, having privateers was probably the best thing that we could do. It was the quickest way to get a force out on the ocean that was inflicting some pain upon the British. The ships were, for the most part, already there. The mariners knew what they were doing. There were a lot of green hands or landsmen on board, but it was really, it, it really is, uh, uh, you have to consider the, your options, your opportunities. What could you have done? And I think privateering was the best option available, uh, no matter what all the critics said at the time. And even people who loved the Navy, John Adams loved privateers, but John Adams was very instrumental in founding the Navy. He loved maritime Anything having to do with the maritime fleets, uh, fishermen, whatever, that was his bailiwick. That was what he loved. He came from Massachusetts, the most maritime-centric of the colonies, I would argue. And uh, he reflected at the end of the war, he said, when you look over the history of the Continental Navy, it's hard to avoid tears. And it's true. And other historians who have studied the Continental Navy in much more detail than I have, have basically come to the same conclusion that Without the Continental Navy, it's hard to see how the outcome of the revolution would have been much different. And I want to bring up one person that a lot of people mentioned to me just at a talk the other night, John Paul Jones. John Paul Jones has become larger than life. I don't want to knock him down. He did a lot of really fascinating things. He was a fascinating person. But for most of his revolutionary career, he acted very much like a privateer, even though he hated privateers. He captured a lot of British merchant shipping using the Ranger and other Continental Navy ships. Also, in his most famous battle, uh, when he had the Bonhomme Richard against the Serapis and Flamborough Head, well, that's that was great for our morale. It was an amazing battle, but it was sort of a Pyrrhic victory. The Bonhomme Richard, his ship, sank. 
and he had yeah. to transfer all his men to the Serapis, and they barely made it into Holland. And then the main reason that he was going after these ships, he didn't want to engage these ships necessarily, is there was a huge convoy of merchant, British merchant ships that he wanted to capture. Well, they got away while they were fighting. So, uh, you know, I'm not down downplaying or discounting what he did. And there have been a lot of books written about John Paul Jones. But I would argue that if we had more documentation, and unfortunately we really don't, because a lot of privateersmen didn't write their own memoirs, and a lot of people didn't write a lot about them at the time, just like pirates, in fact. And But if we had more in-depth information, I think we could find a couple of privateersmen, like Jonathan Harridan from from Salem or some of the captains of the Hulker, which is one of the most successful privateering ship of all, you know, that would be held up as heroes. And if not heroes, and that's the other thing, almost all the names you're going to read in the book that aren't related to the army or the Navy are names you've never heard before. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you may never hear again, but that's because they were sort of, even though they were central, I think, to the American fight, uh, they never became household names. They're not ballyhooed. And I think part of that is because people reflexively looked at privateers and they said pirates and, and people have a very negative view of pirates and that's fine. You should have a negative view of pirates. I mean, I'm all for people that want to dress up as pirates. And I, I loved writing my book, Black Flags, Blue Waters. But I always remember one comment that somebody, <laughs> somebody wrote a comment. He goes, I don't know why Eric Dolan hates pirates. And I think, <laughs> what he's, I think what he's missing is that I told the real story about pirates. If you look at pirates and what they did, they were not nice people. No. They were, you know, out in the ocean to get what they wanted. They weren't Robin Hood's men. They weren't stealing from the rich to give to the poor. They were stealing from the rich to give to themselves. They were oftentimes violent. At least they were violent enough to make people scared of them. And they had a miserable existence. Now, what happened in society is we've Johnny Deppized or, or Captain Sparrowized our pirates. And as well before him... It was, you know, Hollywood and Errol Flynn is a pirate and all these famous. You know, and I have nothing against that. I love those those movies. and I love all the people that dress up in pirate costumes. And I've met a number of them at, at events. And uh, but that's not the real history. <laughs> you can have fun with it. That's not the real history. It's almost like glorifying terrorists of the day in, yeah. in a way. So anyway, getting back to to privateering. I think that privateering has been sort of uh, too cavalierly in the American Revolution been sort of reflexively associated with piracy and thereby discounted. And Americans, as you well know, because we're both Americans, Americans love their heroes and they love their heroes to be clean and, 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 and you know, no, no blemishes and fighting the good fight and doing it for the right reasons. And that's another reason why I spent so much time in the book talking about patriotism versus profit. Privateers were in it. Privateersmen were in it to make a profit. They were also patriotic by their own words and their actions. But you have to look at the other people. The only reason people stayed in the Continental Navy is because they were paid. They were paid bonuses. They were promised land. There were rebellions within the Continental Army throughout the American Revolution for lack of pay. George Washington said you cannot rely on Republican virtues of you know civic virtue. You have to have some reward to get people to fight, put their life on the line. That's what human nature is all about. And the same can be said for the Navy. In fact, what's fascinating is the advertisements to get people to join naval ships 
read very much like advertisements for privateering. They, 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 they invite them to a local pub. They offer to get them drunk. They <laughs> give them a signing bonus. They say, you're going to go out for your, your, uh, you know, for patriotism. You're going to fight for your new country, but you're also going to make a fortune while you're doing it. And John Paul Jones, who hated privateersmen, mainly because they were sucking men from him, his own advertisements that he put up for the Ranger, for example, one of his ships explicitly focused on the fact that you were going to have nice conditions on the ship and you were going to be able to earn your fortune. And many in the Continental Congress and many in the Navy knew what everybody really knew who was looking at the situation is that Continental Navy ships were not sent out to take on British warships. It was no contest. Mm -hmm. The biggest Continental Navy ships maybe had, uh, some of them maybe had 40 cannons, six-pound cannons. They couldn't take on a 74 uh, you know, a ship of the line from from uh, from Britain or even a good frigate with a really crack crew. So although they did capture, capture a handful of British warships, almost all of the captures of John Paul Jones and other Continental Navy ships were British merchantmen, exactly what privateers were doing. So I think the closer you look at the details of what really was happening, the lines between privateers and the Navy get a little bit blurred. And also you can, I, I think inevitably, if you read this book, if you don't come out of it with a better appreciation for privateering, then you didn't read the book. And that doesn't mean that you come out of it with a worse reputation, a worse perspective on the Navy. You know, this is the Navy's first hour. As I said in the book, it wasn't their finest. And that is fine. The Navy, I, I love the Navy. I mean, I, I, lo I love our military. I'm glad we have them. And that was the beginning. Well, you know, everybody doesn't start in a phenomenal way. And they did much better in the War of 1812. And then they've done much, much better in later wars. But uh, given the circumstances they were confronting and what we, could, what we could do as a bunch of colonies that were relatively poor and uh, had to ramp up very quickly, uh, I don't, I don't view the Continental Navy as a failure. I just, you, you put it in perspective. That's all. Right. I, I agree. I mean, you got to start somewhere. <laughs> so let's get into how these guys lived. So chapter four, a privateersman's life. You were establishing that the crews signed on for a specific cruise right. instead of on a boat. Yeah, well, it was a cruise. The cruise was attached to the vessel, but one of the things that was attractive about being a privateersman, as opposed to joining the navy, you join the navy. You know, you might be out doing diplomatic missions or, or out looking for ships. Uh, you know, for many months or a year. You know, you have enlistment times. Privateering cruises were often very quick, maybe two months, maybe three months, especially if they were successful, because if you started out with a crew of a hundred and you captured a prize. You might take 10 of your men and throw them on the prize and put the prisoners down below and you have to sail back to port. So now you have 90 men. You catch another prize, another 10 men. It becomes a point of diminishing returns. And at some point, you, you can't go out and fight British ships with 30 men on board. So you have to go back to uh, port to replenish and refuel. So privateering cruises were relatively short. I mean, they, some could be four or five, six months, but they usually were shorter and... Uh, you know, and uh, they held out the prospect of you could. Another difference between the Continental Navy and privateering 
is that the Continental Navy had to go where the Navy ordered them to go. And they couldn't necessarily just go out and hunt for merchant ships. They might have to be on a diplomatic mission. They uh, might be ferrying uh, correspondence. They might be protecting a port from British attack. But privateersmen and privateers, they could go exactly where the prey was. And they could choose to just go out and attack British ships. So it gave them a greater chance of success, in effect. Um, so yeah, the crew, they got on a cruise. Uh, it's just like any ship at the time. I mean, it's, uh, it's not the, uh, uh, you know, it's not the greatest profession. The, the ships were cramped. Uh, the food wasn't that great. Uh, some of the provisioners didn't give them the best of beef and other stuff that on board the water often got putrid, but they could solve that by drinking liquor, which most of them did. Uh, so uh, it, it was a tough life, but really what was the worst thing about it is another thing. People assume that privateers ran and they never fought. A lot of privateers fought and privateersmen and a lot of privateersmen died in battle, oftentimes losing, sometimes winning. So when you were, a, a, when you were anybody going out on a ship at the time, it was potentially dangerous. But if you're a privateer, if you aren't a privateer, not only do you, you may knock into a British warship and get your, you know, lose badly and possibly die. You might founder in a hurricane. You might hit a reef. You might just have an old rickety ship and sink in a storm, which happened a lot. Um, so there are a lot of dangers involved in being a privateer to begin with. It took a lot of guts to go out. And then you had the conditions on board, which weren't necessarily the most salubrious and greatest conditions. And uh, then you hopefully you come back with money in your pocket. And some privateers, like the Hulker out of Philadelphia had about six or seven captains, but it captured, I think, something in the order of 70 ships. And it had one cruise in which it captured 10 prizes, very big British merchant ships, uh, and brought them back to port. And the auctions generated two million pounds worth of profit. Now, one of the first privateers to go out, the, the Chance and the Congress, when they came back, the owners got about 5,000 pounds. Put that in perspective, 5,000 pounds was basically what a successful merchant would have, would be worth. I mean, that, that was like a career. And some of the men on board got 1,000 pounds. And this is at a time when an average laborer, or let's say an average fisherman, uh, he might earn, you know, uh, 10 pounds, eight pounds a month or something. So we're talking life-changing money when you were successful. And that's what drew so many people to privateering. It was, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's the same thing. It's like going into a casino and playing the slot machine, totally based on luck. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no gaming it. It's, it's luck. Privateering is a little bit better because you can have a good captain, you can know where to go. But the point I'm making is you go in and you don't know if you're gonna walk away a winner that day or a loser. And when you're a privateer, privateersman, you go out in one of these vessels, you don't know if you're going to be a winner or a loser. And there are some privateering ships like the Royal Lewis out of uh, Philadelphia. Its first cruise, it captured it's Stephen Decatur, the father of more famous Decatur later on. Anyway, the, um, the first cruise, they captured seven ships. Big success. They came back into Philadelphia. Crowds were there to meet them on the, in, in the dock. Uh, they were all, you know, screaming and everybody was so excited. They went out on the next cruise expecting to be just as successful. A couple of days later, they run into the HMS Amphion 
a large British warship like that. They're captured. Decatur knew he couldn't even fight these guys. And they're brought into uh, New York. And many of the men were thrown onto one of the prison hulks, including the Jersey. So, you know, I often think if I was back in, during the American Revolutionary times, what would I have done with my life? I have no idea. But it took a lot of guts to be a, a naval man, to go into the army, and to be a privateersman. Uh, it, it was a tough life. I mean, life was tough in general. But uh, a lot of people died. And when you think about how many people died during the American Revolution in battle, in battle, I'm going to think about sickness. But in battle, it's only about 4,000 to 6,000. The numbers are very hard to come by. Well, 11,000 to 11,500 men died on the prison hulks alone on the New Jersey alone. And, and actually, that's the case in almost all of our wars. Uh, the people who died due to disease or being in prison often outstrips by a large margin the number of people who are actually shot with a bullet or exploded by a, a bomb or sunk. Uh, anyway, so war is hell, as they say. Yes. Back then it was, back then it was too. <laughs> now, um, when these privateers are captured, are they treated any different because they're technically civilians? Yeah. The, the British hated privateers. Hired privateersmen. And what's really interesting is they called them pirates. And they often threatened to hang them. But there was a problem. Uh, technically, if you accepted... America was not supposed to be able to issue letters of mark because it wasn't a sovereign nation. Britain didn't want to recognize the sovereign, sovereignty of America. So if they viewed privateersmen as legitimate prisoners of war, that would be a problem. They couldn't do that. So they technically were really still British citizens because they wanted to be brought back in the fold. But the uh, British government and their constitution, unwritten constitution, people who were brought into and kept in jail, you couldn't be kept in jail forever. There was habeas corpus. You had to, you had to be brought before a judge and told what you're being accused of and have your day in court. Well, they didn't want to do that for all these privateersmen either. So they basically passed a law that said anybody caught at sea, you know, it, acting treasonous behavior could be held indefinitely in prison. And that's what they did. And uh, they thought the war would be over soon. And the problem is their prisons soon got overrun with too many Americans. But originally they said, oh, this is not a problem. It's only going to be about a year that we have to worry about this. And uh, so it created a real uh, problem for them. The other problem is, you know, they threatened to hang a lot of these American privateersmen. And they definitely had less respect for privateersmen than they did for people in the Continental Navy and Army, which they thought were sort of more regularized or normal uh, combatants. Um, so at one time they were talking about, well, can we hunt? Can we hang these privateersmen? But then they said, oh, my goodness, if we start hanging these people, not only are the people in Britain who are sympathetic to them going to get upset, more upset, but the Americans are going to start hanging more of our people. So it was like a tit for tat. <laughs> so essentially, that's what created this huge reservoir of imprisoned privateersmen and army men and, and Marines uh, because they didn't know what to do with them. They didn't want to just let them go. And that was why prisoner swaps rarely happened as well. So it, it, was, just, it was just a mess. They were totally unprepared uh, at the outset, uh, Great Britain, because they were too cocky and they were too arrogant. And in the first year or two, they definitely thought that it was going to be over quickly. And uh, 
that's another thing I often think about. You talk about little changes that could have changed the course of the war. I think if the British military and politicians had not been so arrogant and had been a little more realistic about the nature of the people they were fighting, instead of calling them a, an unwashed rab, rabble, they had understood that these are people that fought as, beside them during the Seven Years' War and showed that they were very good fighters and had a lot of fierce determination. And the colonies were not super poor. They, they, were, they were some of the best fishermen in the world. They had shipbuilding capabilities. They had foundries. I mean, they were not to be trifled with. And I think initially the British viewed the Americans as a net, like as a mosquito to be swatted. And they made a big mistake. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they over or underestimated our production power. Yes. Well, the same thing happened with World War II. Oh yeah, absolutely. Too, we were we were a little we were we were weakened by the depression. That's for sure, and uh, our our manufacturing sector was greatly depleted, and we were viewed as you know not a has been power, but you know we were sleeping giant. But nobody, I think, really I don't think the Japanese or the Germans really appreciated the it's like potential energy and kinetic energy. They didn't appreciate the potential that was in the United States. And boy, did they misjudge. Yep. That uh, has been a recurring theme that we've been coming across as we've gone through the conflicts. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Everybody, I mean, I look at Putin and Ukraine right now. Totally overestimated the power of the Russian army and the weakness of the Ukrainians. So anyway, it's... Uh, I think it's very common somehow for people who are on top, who think they're on top, to overestimate their abilities and underestimate the abilities of those they want to oppress. I think mm -hmm. it's a common theme in, in history. It is. And it's a common theme in sports. Look at sporting teams have that problem too. You get too cocky and then you get knocked off the, your pedestal. And that's what it is. It's just your frame of mind going in there. If you have a superior attitude, you're going down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's about all the time I have you for. Oh, so okay. is there anything else you want to say before we leave? Yes. Any, any author has to say this, please buy my book. And also, if you want to find out more about the book, if you want to learn before you leave, I do have a website and I'm not mentioning it. Everybody mentions their website, but my website, I think it'd be good to go to because I have the introductory chapter of every one of my books on the website. So you can read the introduction to Rebels at Sea and you'll know exactly what the book's about and what its arguments are and what kind of writer I am. So if you go to my website, which is just my name, Eric J. Dolan, it's E-R-I-C-J-A-Y-D-O-L-I-N.com. And you go to the, the book setting, uh, you'll see my books is a drop down menu. Anyway, you could read the introduction. You can read what reviewers have said about the book. You can learn a little bit about me and, uh, you know, hopefully that'll help you decide whether or not to get a copy of this book. I don't know when your broadcast is going to go on, but part of the reason that the book came out right now is myself and my publisher both felt that this would be a great Father's Day gift. A lot of people, and I've already gotten a lot of feedback from people who have bought it for their fathers or grandfathers or whatever. And uh, so I'm, I'm hoping that people buy the book because as a writer, the only way I keep writing is that people buy my book. So there, that's enough of my personal advertising. All right. Well, thank you very much, Eric. This was fun. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Yes. Yes. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. Uh, oh, any socials you want to put out there real quick? 
socials. Oh, I have a, well, yeah, my Facebook page, I, I don't like Twitter that much. I don't really go on Twitter too much. My Facebook page is just my name, Eric J. Dolan. And that's a fun, I think it's a fun page. It has about almost 17,000 followers and they're very active. I post things on history in general, a lot on nature because of my background in biology. But I also post things about my books. I often put excerpts of the books. I, I, I list sometimes where I'm speaking. And also on my website, you can see where I'm speaking. I've got about 35 talks coming up. Uh, again, I don't know when this podcast is going on, but I'm speaking at the U.S. Navy Museum in Washington, D.C. next Friday, which is June 10th at 1 yeah. o'clock. So It'll be out before then. I'm giving a slideshow at uh, 1 o'clock. So if you want to come hear me talk and see a lot of pretty pictures or interesting pictures, you can do that. Uh, but again, my Facebook page, it's a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun for me. You know, writers are sort of lonely, not lonely people, but I'm like an introvert. Even though I like talking, I'm an introvert. I spend, this is my office. It's in my house. I spend a lot of time in here. And even though people can deride uh, social media because it brings a lot of nastiness into the world, my Facebook page is a surprisingly pleasant place. And I hardly ever get a political comment on there. Every once in a while, somebody does something that's pretty mean, but very rarely. And it's been fun for me because there are literally hundreds of people who I've gotten to know. And uh, they, they post comments and we have a back and forth. And it's just fun seeing other people's perspectives and they tell stories. Like for this book in particular, I've posted a couple of things about the book. I probably had 20 or 30 people who have ancestors who are privateersmen. And they've told me their names and told me a little bit about their stories. And they ask whether they're in the book. And uh, you know, can you help me? I want to find more information about my ancestor. What do you think? Where should I look? So it's been really a lot of fun connecting with these people's stories uh, in their own lives uh, through this, you know, through your computer. I don't know. I don't, I don't see these people. You just see what they say. And uh, every once in a while, they show up in my talks, which is a lot of fun. I'll have somebody show up in my talk and they'll come up afterwards and go, hey, I'm one of your Facebook followers. Do you remember me? And I say, oh, yeah, I remember you. <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, thank you again for coming out. Okay, guys, reach out to... Eric J. Dolan on the socials. Grab this book. I highly recommend it. Like I said, I couldn't put it down. I, I finished it off in like 12 hours. That's great. Um, Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. And if you guys want, you could reach out to me at US Navy History Podcast at gmail.com or you can tweet at me at USN History Pod. And as always, fair winds and following seas. Bye, guys. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing.